Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening, everyone, uh, and welcome to tonight's program at the Commonwealth Club. Uh, my name is Philip Yan. I'm the Executive Director and Chief Operating Officer of Plowshares Fund, and I'm very pleased to be your moderator for this special program. Uh, joining us today is uh, Jim Shudo, CNN's Chief National Security Correspondent and the co-anchor of CNN Newsroom. Jim, as you will hear, uh, has reported from across Asia, Europe, the Middle East, and the Arctic. And so we're going to hear a little bit about that as a foreign correspondent over the past two decades. And I also note that he was also for a short period of time uh, working for the government uh, as chief of staff to the ambassador to China. So he's seen it from both sides uh, of, of, uh, of the world here. Um, tonight, we're going to be talking about this outstanding book. I found it very compelling, frightening in some ways, but a call to action, as he will talk about. Um, and he's here to discuss his new book, which is entitled... Shadow War Inside Russia's and China's Secret Operation to Defeat America. Pretty, pretty eye-catching, huh? Provocative. So we're excited to have Jim here tonight. And I have to say that we're so glad that you're here because he was actually on his news program this morning and made it all the way out here to San Francisco to be with us because he wanted to have the actual opportunity to meet with you all and answer your questions. So, Jim, ladies and gentlemen, uh, please join me in welcoming Jim Shudo to the Commonwealth Club. Thanks so much. All right. So let's dive in. Thanks to you. Let, let me thank the yep. Commonwealth, Commonwealth Club. Let me, let me thank all of you. I always feel obligated to thank people when it's a beautiful evening outside to come inside and hear me talk about Russia and China. I appreciate it. I've got, I've got a lot of friends in San Francisco. I even some family here. I didn't know I had so many friends and family here. So I appreciate <laughs> you taking the time. So let's, let's dive in. As I said, I wanted to, to talk about um, it's a, as I said, it was an eye-opening book for me. Um, someone who's been versed in national security or things there that I definitely was not aware of, um, which I found very interesting and frightening, compelling, I think, and very cogent in terms of your uh, of what you were pointing out to us. So I want to ask, essentially, the uh, what this book is about, okay, um, and why it's important. I, I, it's really interesting because I looked at the epilogue, the end of the book, and one of the things that you note is you have, he has reported from all over the world. It's Russia, China, Zimbabwe, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Syria, and Washington, D.C., covering the Pentagon and the State Department. And he talks about what are seemingly disparate sort of incidents, and because of his breadth, both being in government, but also being a reporter, which by nature is a generalist, makes some very interesting connections. So, Jim, why don't you start off from there as that context? I will. Thank you. It's, you know, the, the book... It, in many respects, it is the, is the result of spending so much time over the years in these countries and seeing the dots and, then, and covering the dots and being on the front lines of the dots and, and then connecting those dots over time and, and realizing another point I make in the epilogue, you know, as an American, this, this, this duty to, to warn my fellow citizens to some degree here without being dramatic, but, but, but I do, feel having been in these places that there is a threat that has emerged that we haven't acknowledged, I think, as, as a citizenry, but, but that our, our leaders haven't effectively articulated and, and acknowledged for us. So, so what is the shadow war? It, it's, I, I think that folks in general are aware of one or two fronts 
uh, of this war, of this conflict, but, but, but not aware of many others. I mean, we, we know that Russia interfered in our election in 2016. They, they did again in 2018. They, they will again in 2020 and have in, in many elections you know, across the West. Uh, people are gener- generally aware, particularly here in, in tech-savvy San Francisco, uh, about operations in, in cyberspace, um, both, both threats to infrastructure, cyber attacks, but also the theft of state secrets, right, you know, both in the private and public sector. So folks are generally aware of those fronts, but, I, but there are other fronts uh, that I think folks aren't. One, and the one I think folks are often most surprised to hear about, is, is the space front of this conflict, that today both Russia and China have deployed space weapons. They're floating above our heads at, at 100 miles, at, at uh, up to 22,000 miles in geostationary orbit. Uh, U.S. Space Command refers to, to them as kamikaze satellites, uh, highly maneuverable. Uh, they can go up to our most sensitive space assets and ram them like a like an old school, you know, battering ram and smash them into a, a million pieces or disable them in other ways. Um, there are directed energy weapons in space. There are lasers in space already today. They, they can do anything from dazzle a satellite, you know, blind it temporarily to fry it, just fry its electronics. Uh, why do they do that? Because we are more advanced in space than any other country, but also therefore more dependent on space technology. That's particularly true of our military. Um, smart bombs aren't smart without satellite technology. Um, drones don't fly. Uh, the, the, the enormous communications capability of the U.S. military today uh, is not, does not exist without space technology. And because our adversaries know of that advancement and that dependence, they know that if they take out not the entire constellation, but say three or four of the 24 GPS satellites, that creates blind areas. In geostationary orbit, we essentially have four satellites that do nuclear early warning. Uh, you take out one or two, and you've blinded the U.S. to significant portions of the planet. Allows, you know, the, the, the possibility of a surprise attack. Um, so that that that's a front that, that I think folks are only beginning to hear about. Um, in addition to that, there is a massive new great game taking place under the waves in submarine technology. China and Russia, over the course of the last several years, have deployed quieter, faster submarines. Quieter, faster submarines, as we saw in the hunt, hunt for it October, are, are harder. I always think that Hollywood's 20 or 30 years uh, ahead of the game sometimes, and they are in this sense. Um, it's an offes- offensive weapon by its nature, because a quiet submarine that you can't detect can pop up off your coastline and launch nuclear missiles. It's as simple as that. It's, it's an offensive weapon. And I spent the reason I went to the Arctic is I spent a few days on a U.S. nuclear sub in exercises under the Arctic where they are practicing tracking Russian submarines, which are very active in the Arctic as the ice melts. Of course, this becomes a new front in this kind of global conflict. Um, And they're practicing more because they're having greater trouble keeping up with the technology. You will see news stories occasionally of a Russian sub popping up off the coast of Florida. They do that on purpose to show that they can do it. A Chinese sub famously showed up in the middle of a U.S. carrier group without Mm -hmm. warning, and they didn't see him coming. And that's a problem. Um, so you've got information operations, election interference, okay? You've got cyber operations, uh, theft of state secrets, um, attacks on other critical infrastructure, uh, water power 
plants, power grid, etc., uh, they have the capability to make the lights flicker in San Francisco today. They do. Uh, it's just a question of deploying those weapons. So information ops, cyber ops, space war, um, the, the new military, global military comp- competition under the waves in terms of submarine technology, and then finally, old-school 19th-century land acquisition, right? Uh, Russia invaded a sovereign European country, and it's still there five years later, Ukraine. Um, China put a new spin on it. They up and created territory in the middle of the South China Sea. They just built it. Another chapter of the book is on this, and I I was able to go on a U.S. spy plane uh, a few years ago as as they flew over and monitored the building of these unsinkable aircraft carriers in the South China Sea. It was just an amazing feat of structural engineering. Uh, they, they were just dredging up um, land, digging the harbors as they're doing it, and then spilling it all out and creating these islands that are now militarized with landing strips and surface-to-air missiles, etc. Um, so you have those multiple fronts that connect in a common strategy uh, which is to undermine the U.S. where it can, uh, and and to some degree over time surpass the U.S. And 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 final thing I'll say because uh, um, I know you have a lot of questions okay. is that China and Russia are two very different countries with different histories, different continents, cultures, language languages, etc. But and they're not working together, by the way, on this. But have simultaneously settled on a shadow war strategy of achieving their objectives and undermining the U.S. at the same time. And they speak about it publicly. You know, the, you, you see this in their speeches. You see it in their military uh, doctrine. The Russians call it, well, we've come to call it because this guy named Gerasimov wrote it out in a paper six years ago, Gerasimov Doctrine. The Chinese call it winning without fighting. A- and the final innovation of this, uh, they de- describe it as multi-front permanent warfare but they calculate what the threshold is for a decisive U.S. reaction to it. What is the threshold for a shooting war and stay just below it? So, Jim, why don't you pull on that a little bit? Because I yeah. think that's really interesting. As we step back, we can mm-hmm. talk about a little bit more about the how, which you've laid out greatly, which in a great way as a, as, as a start. But it's the nature of warfare that we're talking about here. You're talking about a completely new way of approaching uh, war which is politics by another means, yeah. right? And this is not, you know, people seem to be the whole notion. We always hear this thing that everyone is always fighting the last war. That was the problem with World War One. People didn't understand that the war, nature of warfare had completely changed. Cold War is no longer the case. We're talking about globalization. We have all these things that are going on. And so you are pointing out the nature of warfare that is the most relevant is no longer the frontal assault, per right. se. You're talking about something else. So talk about that for us a little okay, bit. Okay, so you see example of Ukraine, yeah. right? Yeah. So, so you, you don't roll the tanks across the border from Russia with the Russian flag waving and, and uniformed soldiers, so on. Little green men, right? You've heard of little green men. They, There's the, a the, chapter about this, by the way, little green men. Yeah. They, they showed up in Crimea in 2014. They didn't have any insignia. Everybody knew they were Russian. They looked Russian. They were talking Russian. They were speaking Russian. Uh, but there was a little bit of plausible deniability. They claimed to be coming in to protect ethnic Russians there who were under threat by their Ukrainian oppressors. You know, th- this was the whole kind of BS story that no one really believed, but it worked. And they're still there. Um, in eastern Ukraine, a little bit different in that um, they, they, they arm and train pro-Russian separatists on the ground. 
some of whom, yeah, they're Ukrainian, but a whole host of them are, are former Russian military. Uh, again, not wearing the uniform, not rolling across, you know, in the middle of the day in big tank columns, but coming in over time and you get the same result. Uh, and this point of you do it in such a way that you don't get that decisive reaction from from the West. Yeah, you get some sanctions and you get some, you know, critical speeches and statements and, and so on. Uh, but you don't get a decisive you don't get a decisive response. So that, that's a U- Ukrainian example. You know, China, you know, in, instead of uh you know, going, getting into a shooting fight, say, with, with the half a dozen other countries that claim the South China Sea, yeah. they just started building territory there. They just started building over time. No one else could compete with them. We were flying planes over them and, and sailing ships by them. They just kept at it, and lo and behold, they're still there. So for us, I mean, from, from your, I think I want, they should hear from you, is why do you think this is important? Mm. And what are the longer-term repercussions for that from your perspective? It's, it's important because it undermines U.S. national security interests, right, uh, in a way that makes the world less safe for us. You know, uh, I mean, Russia is in the midst of a, a years-long campaign to undermine NATO. Uh, NATO and a host of other alliances there have helped keep the peace in Europe for 60-some-odd for years, and, and that's in our interest, and in it's in the interest of our allies. Uh, Russia sees benefit in creating divisions there, and they've been very successful uh, to some degree. I mean, NATO still exists, um, for sure, and it's made some positive moves to counter Russian aggression, but Russia has also done a pretty good job of creating fissures, even right up to the to the to the U.S. president today, who makes public statements questioning whether NATO is, is necessary today. Um, South China Sea. I mean, our prosperity, and you can argue our Asian friends' prosperity, and even China's prosperity, has been dependent on a peaceful Asia, uh, free shipping lanes. You know, those those unsinkable aircraft carriers are right in the midst of the the most um, lucrative shipping lanes in, in, in the world. You know, it, it's our economic interests. It's our interest in, in a peaceful world order, right? From our perspective, and yep. again, they see it from a different perspective. You know that better than I do. Um, but these 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 efforts are you know contradict our own interests and and then beyond those kind of relatively soft power interests there there are the you know China and Russia are doing their best to neutralize America's military advantage so that if it comes to a shooting war, they can't just hold their own, they can beat us. And that's hence the focus on submarine technology, hence the deployment of weapons in space that could blind us today. So I worry about not just our interests, but our safety. That's why it's important. Okay, thank you. All right, so you've now everyone's got a sense of what shadow wars are. And we note that you're, you do focus on China um, and Russia. I mean, some great examples. Um, you also, you know, there's mentions about North Korea and, and Iran, and we'll talk about that. But let's then go into the how they're doing it. You've mentioned some of this. Um, the, the book has chapters about different ways in which is going about. I don't want to go through all seven or eight chapters per se. So what I did, I sort of synthesized it a little bit and categorized into basic clumps that you can sort of respond to. And the thing that really struck me was um, your description of how this, the, the starting of this 
this new type of warfare, and you mark the beginning um, of that. And it was the the way that I would describe it and the way you described it is unprecedented aggression, mm. you know, which is so clear in your mind. Can you talk about that, both Russia and China? Well, I start, I start with Estonia in 2007, uh, NATO ally. Uh, th- this was the first and, and largest nation-on-nation cyber attack. Russia... It was basically a big DDoS attack, right? I mean, distributed denial of service attack. You probably read about them here. But, you know, inundate the country with requests and demands to, to shut down its, its, its critical systems. Uh, it, Russia, via botnets, took over thousands of computers in more than 100 countries and just suffocated the country. And Estonia, which which is a you know, highly technologically advanced country, you know, way ahead of the game on online voting, online banking, etc., was more dependent on on these systems than, you know, really any other country in Europe was at the time. So it was hitting them. You know, again, it's like it's like these other fronts of the shadow war, you know, go after their dependency and and then inflict pain and damage Uh, to the point where Russia, I mean, enormous act of aggression. Estonia's only response in the end was they had to cut themselves off. Basically, they had to cut themselves off from the Internet just to kind of get get their footing. And and the concern in Estonia at the time was that this was a preface to an actual land invasion. You know, Estonia only had its independence at that point for 16 years. Of course, the Baltic states were were in the USSR against their will uh, for many years. They thought that the next step was you know, tanks across the border. And, you know, you never know. I mean, an attack like that could very much be the preface of it. Now, it's it's impossible to say that that one attack was the beginning of this, because there were signs before Putin's, you know, comments and and statements prior. um, But but there was an uptick in the level of aggression at that time, which should have been a warning. And then what followed, uh, if you remember, in 2008, Russia invaded another sovereign state in Georgia. Uh, they're still there, by the way. And then you had a succession of events after that. Uh, I mean, 2014 proved to be another crucial year if you look at events in Ukraine and then uh, the lead-up to a big uh, cyber attack on the U.S. State Department email system, right. which prefaced the uh, election interference in 2016. So, you know, you, you can't pick one point on the map, but you can yeah. pick points where, where, where the, the country you know, turned up the temperature. And, and, and that's, that's the starting point for the book. And then for you, um, you talk more about, you know, what, uh, reading the context in which you talked about the two chemical, you know, the two mm. chemical attacks in London against, you know, enemies of or dissidents against the Soviet mm. Union. I mean, uh, the, the Russians. I, I slipped up like yeah, that all I the time, too. too yeah. <laughs> um, when you put it in this context, I found it really fascinating. So why don't you talk about that and the implications about that? This, this gets to to uh, to a consistent mistake uh, of the U.S. and the Western response to both China and Russia's their increasing aggression, and that was that that we we persisted in, in mirroring. Uh, not my word. Ash Carter talks about this a lot in the book. That, that we looked at Russia and China. Uh, in, in, in Russia's case, in the years after the collapse of the Soviet Union, in China's case, during its economic liberalization, we looked and, and we imagined that they wanted what, what we wanted, or, or particularly that over time they would want that more, right? That, that they would liberalize, maybe not democratize, but that they, the societies would become more open, 
You invite China into the WTO, they'll begin to play by trade rules, right? You invite Russia into a cooperation agreement with NATO, they will see the benefit of the U.S.-constructed world order and want to play by those rules as well. Um, And even in, in the face of contradictory information and evidence over years, administrations of both parties and very smart people in very senior positions uh, continued to mirror, to imagine, listen, over time it's going to change. And, it, and, and, and I start the book with, with these, these two poisonings, as you say, because it, last year, I'm sure you've read about this, Russia poisoned um, uh, Sergei Skripal and his daughter Yulia on, on the streets of Salisbury, England, with the most powerful nerve agent in the world, Novichok, more powerful even than VX. It's, the, it's nasty stuff. You use it because you want to kill someone very pa- painfully. Uh, so when this happened, and I would be speaking to European diplomats or U.S. intelligence officials, they would say, man, when that happened, that was another one of these points where they just turn, turned up the temperature. Boy, we didn't see that coming. And yes, no question, horrible attempted murder, thankfully, in their case, although a British woman uh, died from it because she later found the capsule as it was disguised, brought into the country by these two hitmen. It was disguised uh, as a bottle of Nina Ricci perfume. So she finds it in a, in, a, in a trash bin and puts it on her wrists and dies a couple days later, a horrible, painful death. I mean, this stuff is designed to kill you painfully. Um, so th- there was outrage and so on. And as I was covering that, I said, okay, yeah, this is nasty. But wait a second, 12 years before I was in London, I covered a horrible, painful assassination of Alexander Litvinenko, not with a nerve agent. In this case, it was radioactive polonium-210, also a nasty way to kill someone over time. Um, and, and what was the disconnect there? What, why did we see that in 2006 and not and not realize what was happening, and then twelve years later you, you you're you're surprised yeah. by the aggression and the brutality and so on and, and it just struck me as one of those you know indicative instances where we 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 couldn't you know we didn't see the, we missed the forest for the trees right yeah. we, we 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 didn't um we we continued in mirroring to think that you could kind of draw them back in and and, and like I say in the book, and like I said a moment ago. Republican and Democratic administrations made that mistake. But Bush looked into Putin's eye and said, here's a guy I could do business with. Didn't work out that way. Obama and Hillary Clinton gave the reset button uh, to the Russians. Didn't work out that way. And now we have a president who is convinced that his charm and deal-making capabilities are going to turn Russia around again in the face of, uh, in the face again of horribly contradictory information. So just uh, draw this out. This is the thing that struck me was just how dangerous this material was. I mean, you talk yeah. with people about what it was. I mean, and then you make a, a you characterize the kind of people who would use something like yeah. that. So I, this- well, in both cases, the, the assassins, the, the, the two assassins with Litvinenko and the two, the two with uh, the Skripals brought in enough of the deadly substance to kill thousands of people. That wasn't their intention, but it was so brazen that they hopped on a plane from Moscow to London with enough Novichok to kill thousands, thousands of people. And Litvinenko's killers came in with enough polonium. Polonium is just so sticky, if that's the right word. Um, the, the British consider that, that, that uh, assassination the first 
radiological terror attack on their soil. Yeah. And they, they were able to map out the number of primary, secondary, tertiary contaminations from it because what would happen, you know, first of all, his wife, who was with him, she was contaminated, not deadly. Son was as well, but someone who rode the bus with him the next day, right? There was enough kind of material left on them. Or someone who went to the pine bar at the Millennium Hotel the same day where they injected the stuff in Alexander Litvinenko's teacup, they picked up some of it as well. Because I covered the story and visited these places, uh, too, they tested me. I had to go through a, an elaborate radiation test, which which involved creating a lot of liquid samples over the course of several days, uh, a couple of weeks before my wedding, by the way. And the, uh, thankfully, I was found to, to be clear, but several dozen, 800 Brits were tested and, and several dozen were found to be contaminated. So in both cases, the brazenness of it, they didn't care. They didn't care if they were threatening all these lies. And by the way, as I note in the book, one of the guys who killed Litvinenko is still sitting in the Russian state Duma. He was elected. He's a member of their you know, House of Representatives. So it shows you um, how much they care about our reactions to this kind of thing. Okay. So unprecedented aggressiveness. The other thing that you point to as a uh, um, to make your case, and I, as I said, a very convincing one, is the notion of territorial expansion, mm. using this kind of new warfare to their advantage. Now, you briefly touched on South China Sea for mm. China. Um, um, so we can talk, let's talk a little bit more about that, because I thought it was really interesting how you described some of the things that they were doing. Just as a disclaimer, I was one of the people during the 1990s that wrote the U.S. policy on, on the South China Sea, and it was like... It wasn't publicly criticizing. Yeah, I might have been yeah. implying, and I'm just kidding. But it was sort of like, no, we don't take a... The United States takes no position, but they want everything to be solved peacefully. Right. And we just figured that it was going to continue, that it would be worked out somehow, yeah. some way, right? And now what you're saying is it's... See what has happened with mm -hmm. this sort of, you know, this accretion, this salami slicing tactic that goes on. So... You know, Russia's focus is on what it refers to as its near abroad, basically the old Soviet republics. They want to either bring them back into the folds, you know, physically, like stealing a piece of Georgia, stealing a piece of Ukraine, Crimea, or, you know, effectively, right? Just bring them back under their, under their control. That's been their focus. They're, they're, you know, beyond that, they love to stir trouble and division in Europe. Uh, that, that's why they've interfered in virtually every election in, in Europe in the last several years. Um, uh, you know, that, that's to their advantage. They, they love to see that. China's focus has, has been, uh, to this point on what they refer to as the near seas, you know, the, you know, inside their kind of, you know, their equivalent of near abroad. Although it's interesting, and I note this in the book, that over time, you know, th their ambitions are expanding and they wrote this down. I, I interview a guy who, who, who teaches this kind of stuff at the Naval War College and he says that, listen, in 1949, they like gamed this out like a 12 step plan that, it, you know, it started, you know, First start with the Han Chinese dominated China, then go to the areas Xinjiang, Tibet, and then get the first island chain and so on. But that they, you know, they talk about their far seas ambitions as well. And that's why notice and watch China has a base, a naval base in Sri Lanka right now. They have, they have a base in Djibouti. They are develop a, developing a blue water navy. Mm -hmm. And by the way, like we were talking about, they have highly capable submarines operating around the world. So blue water navy just 
can you meaning it it can it can go out into the deep parts of the ocean and and far beyond home it can operate um far from home you know resupply yep. communicate etc far project, from home. Project, project power and project power yeah and then just the I mean, you did just uh, earlier. You talked about going on the airplane. Just can you tell us like the size that they were that were doing? I mean, it's pretty remarkable, right? The size of the islands, of the yeah. islands, and what so, they so they turned these reefs. They were basically they would peak above the water during low tide, right? I mean, they were a bunch of rocks, fiery cross reef, you know, uh, in the South China Sea. They became enormous issues uh, uh, of contention because they sit sit in waters claimed by half a dozen countries, including. U.S. treaty allies, you know, Philippines among them, uh, and and the thought is that there's a lot of natural resources under there. So you know, there are important shipping lanes, but there's also there may be natural resources. So those little rocks, which by the law of the sea you you can't claim as actual territory, China said, well, let's do something about that. <laughs> let's make it territory, and they added thousands of football football fields of of land to these reefs, three in particular. Over the course of several months, I mean, they did it so quickly. As we were flying over them, they had something like 25 dredgers going at once on one of these reefs, and it just very quickly turned it into what it is today, a highly capable military outpost. Um, And, you know, they won. They won that round of that battle, right, as far as, uh, you know, and we still fly over them and we sail around them, but they're not going anywhere. Right. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. All right, territorial. So we have unprecedented aggression, territorial expansion, and then... um, Something, again, which I found really interesting was the whole space thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, on one way, in one hand, you know, we had in 19, uh, during the 1980s, you know, Star Wars, right? Mm-hmm. The shooting down of the lasers, that was sort of um, discredited in certain ways. And we have theater ballistic missile, you know, ballistic mm-hmm. missile defense. But it was this notion of the weaponization of space, which we, you know, we were saying we didn't want to do. Yeah. At least that has always been the U.S. position. And... Um, there was a great story about what was the Cosmos twenty four ninety nine, as a, as that was your story to make the larger point of what's yeah. going on. Can you talk about that and then move forward? So, so I, I was able to. I went out to Space Command, and, and like, like I said, Trump talks about his Space Force, um, which would basically just be a rebranding of what already exists. We have a Space Force. U.S. Air Force Space Command has tens of thousands of employees and more than 100 bases around the world. And I went to half a dozen of them and they, they, ha- they, and they refer to themselves as space warriors. So I, I tell the story of um, a, a Cosmos 2419. These are um, designators for uh, satellites in space. We, we call all the Russian ones Cosmos and 2499 is their 2499th uh, you know, satellite over the course of time. Um, when it went up, uh, and the U.S. tracks every every rocket launch, every satellite launch, they thought it was just a plain old you know satellite launch. You know, might have been a surveillance satellite. Who knows? And, and then 
we track not just the satellite it, itself, but also all the other garbage that comes with it. The rocket stages, uh, we can track stuff down to the size of about a softball, right? So if someone loses a wrench, we kind of know where that is up in space. So it goes up and it has the satellite that we knew about. And then it had a couple other pieces, and you're like, oh, those things are just kind of floating along in space. Eventually, they'll burn up in the atmosphere. Until a couple weeks later, one of those woke up and then started moving around and operating in a way and moving, <laughs> operating in a way that garbage does not operate. Uh, <laughs> and, and more importantly, it started sidling up to U.S. satellites, circling them, spinning, them, you know, spinning around them like a, you know, like a, like a sub would, would, would circle an aircraft carrier and then move on to the next one, showing tremendous maneuverability, tremendous situational awareness on the part of they, they knew where it was and to get it around. And keep in mind, these things are moving at 17,500 miles an hour, right, orbital speed. So it's it's hard thing to do. Uh, and they determined that this was what they call a kamikaze satellite. Now, China had, has done that as well. China, a couple of years later, their innovation uh, was what we now call a kidnapper satellite. So again, we talk about how Hollywood is ahead of the game. If you remember Moonraker, you know, like stealing satellites out of orbit. Um, so China set up a satellite. And again, we watch all satellite losses, satellite launches, goes up, sends a satellite. Okay, there's that satellite. Wait a second, that satellite just gave birth to another satellite. What happened? Now there are two satellites. And then that second satellite disappeared. And then it reappeared. And we're like, what's happening there? Um, what we realized over time is that the, the bigger one had a grappling arm. Uh, it's able to grab other satellites out of orbit. China's explanation for that is it's a maintenance satellite. If we ever have a problem up there, you can always pick it up out of orbit. Our assessment is that, that it is actually a satellite that can you know, decide if it wants to pluck one of our or more than one of our satellites out of orbit. It could do it. Now, it started at low Earth orbit. They have, in the last... Uh, year shown a capability of doing this at 20,000 miles up in geostationary orbit, where, where, which again shows even greater situational awareness and maneuverability and is where some of our most sensitive satellites live, uh, including nuclear early warning. So that's what's happening up in space as we speak. And you get to the question of space. So, so, so yeah. space has been weaponized. It gets to the question of how does the U.S. respond? Do we... Do we yeah. Do we put our own weapons in space? Now, the U.S. has put weapons in space before. We've shot satellites out of the sky, most recently a few years ago from a U.S. destroyer. Every country that does this will say the satellite was degrading in orbit. We wanted to make sure it didn't fall on Fiji, so therefore we blew it out of the sky. Of course, when they do it, they're also testing their capabilities to shoot satellites out of the sky. So the U.S. did it with an F-15 in the 80s. We did it off a destroyer. Just a few years ago, China has done that as well. By the way, the U.S. blew up nukes in space in the early 50s. Um, thankfully, we learned that that was not a great idea. Uh, yeah, they, they did want, I'm mean, going to tell this story in the book too. Yeah. Uh, and the reason I bring this up, because it gets to the, it gets to the dangers of if you weaponize and what kind of arms race you might end up in. But we, it was called Starfish Prime. L like a lot of things we did then, we did it without knowing what was really going to happen. So, so they lit it off, uh, about a hundred miles up, a thousand miles south of Hawaii, just on, on, on the globe, if you could picture it, but it was so powerful. It literally fried the grid in Hawaii. Yep. It moved, I'm sure there are smarter people in this audience than me, uh, it moved the Earth's ionosphere entirely, and it left radiation in space for a good 30 years afterwards. Uh, so we, we thought, let's, let's, not, let's not do that again. <laughs> but, but it informs the decision now, because do we, because we could, we could put up 
kamikaze satellites, maybe kidnapper satellites tomorrow, do you end up in an arms race? I mean, this is what this is one of those decisions that Space Command is struggling with now. What's the right response? And we have no treaties whatsoever. And there are no treaties. Right? Just like there are no treaties for cyberspace, there's no treaties for, for outer space. So there's this sort of Wild West and people are taking mm-hmm. advantage of the of the vacuum. And the technology is moving like that, way ahead of way ahead of our ability to deal with the technology. Okay. Fourth area, um, information warfare. Now, I kind of lumped that with cyber um, as well as sort of stealing secrets, mm. right? Um, and, you know, a lot of us are very well aware of what the Russians did with the 2016 election. Um, we're worried that that's going to happen again. Um, you talk about that um, but there are other things. So let's talk about Russia, and then we'll talk about China, okay. because they're doing another form, right? Yes. Um, so, so Russia, you, you know, and the Mueller report is really worth reading, i got to tell you, beyond, beyond the genuine questions about obstruction of justice by this president and, and at least communication with Russians during, during the campaign, but just, just the scope of Russian interference, because it's a great record of, of how, aggressive, how aggressive it was. Um, and, and frankly, successful, right? Um, and that's why they did similar things again, though not perhaps to the same degree in, in the midterms, and will certainly be doing similar in 2020. Uh, so that's Russia. And, and it, it has done this in you know, a dozen elections in Europe as well. China does election interference too. It, it, read about Australia right now. I mean, it, it's, it's very front and center, you know, open you know, financial influence, etc. So they do it in a lot of places. Um, but on the other side is the, is the straight-up theft of, of state secrets. And, and I focus just on one guy, a guy named Su Bin, Stephen Su, who is a Chinese-American and Canadian businessman who, over the course of four years, he and two partners in China stole hundreds of gigabytes of data on, on three of the most advanced military aircraft, uh, the F-35, the F-22, and the C-17. And you know he was successful, and Google these images when you go home tonight, because China today is flying three jets that look remarkably like the F-35, the F-22, and the C-17. They gained a lot. They gained a lot. And, and this was one guy over the course of four years who the FBI actually caught. He's one of the few that they caught. Um, I speak to the former head of counterintel for the FBI, a guy named Bob Anderson. It's, it's worth reading the chapter just for the way he talks about this, because he's, he's an ex-cop and he talks about it like a cop. And I'm not going to quote him here because there are you know, <laughs> family, families in the audience. Um, but uh, uh, I asked him how many of these actors the FBI is aware of. And he said, at best, 10 percent on any given day. And, and, he, and, and he says that there are thousands active at any one point. And, and you have, and because cyber, so, so Sue Bin did most of his theft in the, uh, the early, in the early, around uh, 2009 to 13. Uh, but the tech, cyber technology has advanced enormously since then. So a lot of what was necessary to have him on the ground here to do, they don't need anymore. He describes farms with tens of thousands of hackers in, in China operating, you know, the best and brightest in China hacking away private sector companies and public sector sector companies with with great success um and it's it's daunting it's so, daunting so just to give the the audience a flair just how sophisticated Subin that you know what he did right it was sort of like 
you know, the, you describe the network, the meticulous gathering of information in such disparate places. So mm-hmm. talk about that because so it's, it's really fascinating. He was a great spy. He, did, he, he starts off by saying, excuse my language, he said he wasn't an asshole. He made good friends. And, and he, he loved going to fine restaurants and drinking a lot of wine. And he, he, he worked at the sort of bottom rung level among the many suppliers who supply defense industries um, and was able to befriend and, and make business contacts with with executives in the right divisions at some of the big defense contractors. And then with what he would learn from them, figure out who to target specifically to get the information they wanted on that plane at that time. And then what he would do is he would he would send this back to his two cyber partners in China who would then hack their way into you know, your, your hard drive at the office because they knew that you had the plans for this particular part of the plane, right? That kind of thing. Um, and they, it, it's funny. The, the details are great, too, because they were also in it for the money, which is interesting. Right. They were right. very concerned about how much they were getting paid along the way. They were doing it for God and country, but also for money. And the, the emails are they're funny because they, they were constantly writing these reports to their to their masters back in China, talking about how much success they were having with a little bit of flair and probably a little bit of exaggeration, but also occasional nudging for like, oh, by the way, have you paid us? <laughs> have you paid us for the, you know, the last shipment of gigabytes of data? And by the way, next time, I think we need a little bit more money to make this worth our while. You know, listen, there are a lot of motivations that, that, that play in this kind of game. Okay. So, um, like I said, there are a number of chapters. We divided it up in, in different ways, but it's fascinating reading. Um, so we've covered the what, what the shadow war is, how they're doing it. You've got a flavor of that. So let's talk about the really important question of why they're doing mm. it. So we can kind of understand the motivations related to this. I mean, you know, Iran and North Korea, you know, my my experience with that, it's really to to gain tactical advantage in different mm. ways, to elicit sort of um, uh, uh, benefits in certain ways, to increase, you know, in, in the midst of negotiations. But China and Russia, there's a, you're talking, you talk about a large strategic mm-hmm. sort of um, motivation. So can you talk about sure. that and just sort of, you know, we'll, we'll pull on that and explore that a little bit. So, I so think it's really interesting for people to hear. Two powers w- with very similar strategies, but not coordinating. But different goal, but not coordinating. Yeah. I mean, they will work together if, if, they, if they feel that they have um, the same interests, but, but, they, but they're very much, and you saw some of that. It was interesting. When, when, when she was in, uh, in Moscow a couple of weeks ago, did, did you remember this, this encounter where a, where a Russian destroyer came up and buzzed a, a U.S. cruiser in the East China Sea? Interesting. It was a Russian ship in the East China yeah. Sea. It was just a, such great, yeah. co- you know, that was not an accident that right. that happened at that time. But they have their own ambitions, and they don't trust each other. So they're not working together unless they can find a point where it's like, hey, you and I, we can do business on, on this thing. Um, their goals are, their big picture ambitions are different. In, in that China, in that Russia is Let's talk about Russia first. Well, Russia then, first. Yeah. Russia is, is basically a zero-sum game player. Any way that they undermine us or needle us or embarrass us, that's a win. You know, that's a win. If I'm knocking you down a little bit, then I gain. You know, it helps, you know, a little it's about restoring its place as, as a powerful actor. You know, they still have this wound from the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, and I want to uh, make another point yes. on that, yeah. that, tie the two countries together. Uh, but generally a zero-sum player. China 
has a straight-up ambition to surpass the U.S. And that's in their public statements. You hear it in Xi's speeches. You see it in the uh, the editorials of, of the state-run newspapers, that kind of thing. And, and more importantly, beyond that, spend a lot of time in China, you have. You hear it from people young and old. There, there, there is a... There, there's a sense of pride and nationalism, much of it deserved. Um, I mean, this country brought hundreds of, million peop- hundreds of millions of people out of poverty in the span of two decades. I mean, it's, it's truly remarkable. But attached to that is an ambition that, that now is our time. We're the middle kingdom, and we will rightfully regain our place at the middle uh, of the world stage. So they have a, a, a greater ambition. Uh, and that's why w- when you ask folks who they place as the, as the bigger threat to the U.S., that they will almost unanimously say China. Russia, uh, more dangerous, arguably short-term threat as a declining power, but r- China is the rising power, which is the, which is the greater challenger. The point I was going to make about the collapse of the Soviet Union is that, you know, Russians don't look at Gorbachev as a hero. We may. They look at him as a goat, right? He's the guy who sort of gave it all up, gave it all up to the West. And, and Putin operates very much in that mentality. And a lot of this is about restoring what power they can, the near abroad, etc. Interestingly, Chinese leaders study the collapse of the Soviet Union very closely with the intention of not repeating those mistakes. They don't want to be Russia. They, don't, they want the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, to stay in power. They watch for fissures. Uh, they stifle dissent. They're not going to let that happen to them. So they look at Russia to learn that lesson. Okay. You gave a couple of other reasons for it, and I I think the audience should hear those Mm -hmm. as well. One was sort of um, a Monroe Doctrine kind of piece, and then there was this domestic crisis of legitimacy. So Mm -hmm. I I think that would be interesting for people to hear, too. Okay, so Monroe, you know, we we feel that we have a right to exercise power exclusively or nearly exclusively in our hemisphere, Monroe Doctrine. Um, You know, China and Russia have a similar and you, you might say understandable view why you know russia will be like what are you doing messing around in former soviet republic republics i mean you know they looked at the maidan protests if you remember in ukraine the the, the pro-democracy or at least anti that very corrupt pro-russian government protests they they thought that was a cia plot to bring you know to bring ukraine into the western fold that kind of thing and they you know some of that is opportunistic when they when they when they lay blame in that way, but but you know Putin is is a pretty paranoid leader. I think he genuinely believes that that's what was going on there. So, so, you know, th- that's their their view, and they want to you know re-exercise control there. China, you know, China, and it, it asks a question which which may be a fair question: Why why is the U.S. the policeman of? of East Asia. We're China. You know, what are you doing messing around in our first island chain inside, you know, Taiwan? They don't like it when we sail our ships, you know, in the Taiwan Strait, uh, that kind of thing. So, you know, again, you you have to look at that perspective, perhaps understand that perspective, but uh, it's definitely influential in a lot of these moves. One of the things that you talk about in the epilogue, which I found fascinating as well, I mean, you go to the list of the countries that you've been in and... um, let me just say, Russia, China, Zimbabwe, Egypt during during the crisis, Saudi Arabia, Syria. I won't include Washington in this, but there's some people there. <laughs> there's some people there. There's some people there that yeah. are not necessarily people that we 
share the same values with. And you talk about police states or totalitarian, whatever you call them. And I found one of the interesting, for you, I think there's a, you, you had some general observations about what those countries are like. Yeah. And the reason why I, you know, I, I think it's important for them, um, for, for us to understand sort of the thinking there mm-hmm. um, and what that, what that, what the implication, because that then goes to the last section, which I think there are a lot of questions about what we can do about it. Sure. Um, so let's see. And I realize I didn't answer your crisis of legitimacy question, but it's relevant okay, to yeah. what you asked yeah. here because, you know, the, the foreign threat is, is a great way to distract from your own failings at home and, and the fact that you aren't. I mean, like, Chinese people aren't dumb. They know that they, 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 they don't have a democratic state. And, and many Chinese do want a greater voice in their government. And, and to some degree, Russians, although there's a slightly different mentality there. Um, but, you know, this focus on the foreign threat is a nice way to help distract from that lack of legitimacy and also genuine problems, uh, genuine problems at home. Uh, but your, your more recent question to remind me. Um, so uh, the police state. Oh, yeah, police state. Oh, so, so I wrote a piece a number of years ago about how I, I, I went to these, I went to, I hung out in a lot of police states. You know, that's where the news often is. And, and it struck me that, you know, in a Zimbabwe or in Egypt or a Russia or a China, um, Myanmar, you know, under the junta, the, again, countries, different religions, cultures, histories, geographies, economies, but the exercise of, of authoritarian power, all the same tactics, right? You know, sense of victimization, you know, our history has been stifled by these outsiders and, you know, um, trust me, you can't trust anybody else. And by the way, if you question me, I'm going to put you in jail, <laughs> put you in jail or worse. Um, so, so you, you can see those commonalities across many, many different uh, authoritarian countries in, in very different places, which then, you know, and the point I made in the epilogue is that the, the two supreme practitioners uh, of authoritarianism that, that, that have perfected it in this day and age are Russia and China, and they're damn good at it, arguably China even to a greater degree because it's use of technology to do so today, uh, electronic monitoring, et cetera, is just... It, it's mind-boggling, and it's hard to see how you know how that can be broken. Um, but that helped inform coming to write this book because you know it, it is about the nasty exercise of power at home, but it's also about the aggressive exercise of power abroad, which which affects us, right? It endangers us, and, and that again, it goes back to what, why did I feel compelled to sit down and write this book? Was because I do feel that we we need to be looking at these threats honestly and, and with, uh, and also with confidence though, confidence that we can, we can push it back and that gets to the, the solutions. So again, solutions here again, as a preface to the solutions, which we'll go into. So I guess in certain ways, zero sum mm. Japan, I mean, uh, China zero sum because they are the ascending power, which is going to be coming out of, mm. you know, uh, at the expense of the United States and, and Russia looks at things in zero sum. Is there a, you know, we're at, are we at fault in some way? Is the United States at fault for this circumstance? Did we bring about those conditions that would make them think that way? Or is it strategically this was all their game to begin with, or is it a combination yeah. of both? Because during the 1990s, we were always talking about shaping China, yeah. right? This is the mirroring thing that you're talking about. The big dispute was there is a win-win. Now, you know, if I... 
that's not an easy concept in Asia, so to speak, sometimes, yeah. right? The win-win kind of thing. It's mm-hmm. always sometimes zero-sum in the way they look mm-hmm. at it. So I'm trying to figure out here, are there points where we're the ones who cause this? Or And there's a question here that talks about U.S. cause assassination, software attacks, you know, manipulations. We've done our share of certain right. things. So this is the, what we're alluding to. So some people talk about... Um, NATO expansion in the 19, early 1990s yeah. as the initial Did cause for far. where we are going too yeah. far, right? China, you know, there are things they feel like we are trying to keep them down, so now they're looking at us. Or is it just, this is what they were going to do anyway? Yeah. Maybe is, is, it, is it personality driven? Is it Putin per se and not necessarily Russia? Or is it Xi as opposed to Xing Xiaoping, Deng Xiaoping? Okay, so, so a few things. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there is a school of thought. Did. did you know, did we get too close to those near abroad powers? You know, did you, you know, inviting a cooperation agreement with the EU, which was the, the, the spark of the, of the protests in, in the Maidan, was that the EU reaching too far into the, you know, a cooperation agreement with NATO? Did, did it reach too far? Um, you can make that argument, uh, and, it, and it's a fair one. It's a fair one, but let me tell you, because I asked this question of a lot of folks involved, the it was the Ukrainians who went to the street in the Maidan because Yanukovych was a corrupt son of a bitch, right? Yeah. And by the way, in response to those protests, they shot people. They put snipers on the roofs and killed 100 people. Right? Yep. Shot them through the head, okay? Um, and show, you know, exposed what they were willing to do to hold on, hold on to power. Um, it was Ukrainians, you know, through their elected officials who asked for an association agreement with the EU. Now, did, did the U.S., um, and other Western powers view that as a good thing? Yes. And did they speak to the opposition? Yes, no question. Um, but, you know, I speak to the ambassador uh, to Ukraine at the time, Gregory Pyatt, uh, about this, or Jeffrey Pyatt, rather. And, and that's his answer. In fact, I asked him straight up, did we push too far into Russia's near abroad? And he said, that's bullshit. I mean, that was his, you know, yeah. in those direct terms. Because, and he walked through how he was there as it happened, and it was a self you know, self-generating thing. Listen, you know, the U.S. has made horrible mistakes in a thousand different places, no question. But, you know, the, the, the equivalency or the near equivalency, I just think doesn't hold up. And I think, frankly, is bullshit. Um, Russia and China have disdain for their people. They've disdain, and this is another commonality, I think, of, of authoritarian right. states, is a disgust for their own people. They talk about, oh, nationalism and we're the greatest, etc. They treat their people like shit, right? And they have no interest, you know, and, and you have this accrual uh, of power and wealth at the top. And granted, we, we have our own issues here, but we still have a functioning democracy. Um, and, well, get out and vote then, right? I mean, it's, uh, right. I'm just saying... Uh, you're no. here in California, by the way. I know, I know. You, 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 did, you did vote, but all I would say is spend, spend a couple of days there and then come back here and, and tell me which society is more open. And, and, I, and I, am, I live in Washington, and as an American, I am, I am alarmed by and concerned by you know, many trends that are, that are happening here today. I'm just saying that the, you can't equate the two because they are, they are so drastically different. And, and I feel the same way about... Listen, America has, yes, it's assassinated people abroad. It has. We, we've propagated wars that, that killed a lot of people, you know, for either misreading of the situation on the ground, you know, or, or others. But, um, but we've also done a lot of good. And that, you know, I, I do think that our, that our system is, is, uh, is one that has more 
positive things to offer the world than their systems do. And, and uh, you know, warts and all. And, and that doesn't mean that we can't and shouldn't be constantly battling to make it better. And it certainly doesn't mean that we don't have bad actors. I just, I just think having spent a lot of time in these countries and seen the degree to which they behave, uh, both at home and abroad, it's, it's, not, it's just not the same. So I think fundamentally what I got from your book, which I, am, you know, I do agree with, is that it may have been the case that there was another path that might have been possible mm-hmm. um, maybe 20 years ago. Yeah. But given the evidence that you're giving right now, yeah. the reality is, and now, hence, what do we do about it, yeah. right? And so um, you lay out a number of mm-hmm. sort of uh, prescriptions, um, and a lot of the questions relate to what can future generations do, um, you know, uh, and re- relate to, where are those? They were, oh, individual citizens, how do we protect and inoculate ourselves, mm. right? That's a good point. Uh, what is American all... appropriate political response to all of this, right? Okay. So the question is, is that, you know, if we are clear-eyed about what the intent is and they are trying to, you know, uh, make things difficult for us and do things that are at our expense, shouldn't we be responding? Yes. One, just one more point about the differences, I'll say. Yeah. I, I'm a journalist in the age of Trump, and we get attacked every day um, publicly to, to a dangerous degree. Jen, I was on the air when we got a mail bomb at CNN by a guy who was you know, seemingly inspired by Trump's rhetoric, right? So there, there is, we have armed guards on every floor now. We didn't need that before. Um, our reporters, when they go to Trump rallies, have to have armed guards as well because of the kind of vitriol that gets shouted. Um, so that's real, and, that, and I think it's substantive. But reporters who, who uncover anything in Russia get thrown out of windows, literally. Okay? Happened in the last couple of months. They get shot in the head. China is currently imprisoning more than a million Uyghur, Muslim Uyghurs, in the year 2019. I mean, there are concentration camps in China, um, you know, to, to a degree that is just you know, be beyond the pale. So when I, you know, and I'm, I'm a journalist who, who, who takes, takes the, the threats and the rhetoric very seriously. And I do think that it is destructive. Uh, but again, you know, I could still walk down the street and do my job most days. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and most of the time without, without genuinely worry about my, my personal safety. Uh, the solutions, solutions. Yes. So it's, it's what I did is I, I talked to the smart people. I, I, and I have to be grateful for this and just express this outright. I benefit in this book from, from speaking to very current, very, very senior current and former officials who served in, in both Republican and Democratic administrations as these decisions were being made, some of them bad, bad decisions, and they were self-critical in their analysis. They said, here's where I got it wrong. I wish I'd seen that coming. I didn't realize how bad it was when it was happening, that kind of thing. So what I did, I said, guys, you know, men and women, Give me, give me, you know, a 10-step plan or a six-step plan or tell me what has to be done to fight this and, and win this or to defend ourselves. And I crystallized that into, into a chapter. I think it's about 10 things. Um, yeah. Some of them are obvious. Better defense, no question. We, we need better election security. You have, to take the, the, you have to take the threat seriously, some of which we're doing, some of which we're not. And, and you know, we have a president who's had one cabinet-level uh, meeting on election security. That's a problem, you know. You saw the, the reporting as Kirsten Nielsen left that the president's chief of staff told her you can't bring up election security to the president because it hits a sensitive political nerve for him. That's a problem if your commander in chief is not taking that problem seriously. So, so you, have to, you have to defend better. And the same goes for other critical infrastructure. Um, there is a personal element to it. 
I, I interviewed the, the president of Estonia, you know, about how they react. Estonia has successfully figured out how to keep back Russian cyber attacks because the Russians are beating them up every day and they're just damn good at pushing back. And they do a whole host of things. One thing they do that I think would resonate here is they have a sort of Minutemen core militia of smart techies who don't work for the government uh, because it's hard for the government to compete with the private sector in this space, but they're called in kind of as a reserve unit to fight back against cyber attacks when necessary, and they do it, and they do it really well. Estonia also talks a lot about cyber hygiene, right? It's, it's the responsibility that all of us have to not be dumb because a, a, lot of the, a lot of the most successful weapons, particularly in the information ops like the election interference, blunt force stuff, it's spear phishing, right? John Podesta's emails were... Stolen because he clicked on a fake Google Mail, you know, reset email. You know, we all we all get them. So, you know, we're only as good as our weakest link. Um, By the way, just a side story on that. His assistant did the right thing, got that email, sent it to their IT person. I tell this story in the book. uh, And their IT person looked at it, said, this is illegitimate, emailed back. Meant to email back, it's illegitimate. Right. Got autocorrected to legitimate. Yeah. And they clicked on it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Just delete, man. <laughs> just delete. Uh, so, so there's a personal responsibility. Um, on bigger picture issues, you need, we need to figure out a way to negotiate treaties for cyberspace and space because you have to find a way to lay some ground rules for it. Um, we have to make decisions about offensive operations for deterrence, you know, uh, one thing, I, and I give the Trump administration credit for this, yep. uh, they, they enabled offensive cyber operations in some circumstances to help push back. There was some reporting on this last week. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you read about it. Um, putting malware into Russian critical infrastructure to kind of say, guys, you mess with us, we can turn this stuff on. Uh, Obama administration hesitated because they were worried about a, uh, you know, a cyber and then arms race. The Iranian uh, infrastructure. Iranian. Exactly, and we're, it's happening right now. Now, now those are questions that, that have pluses and minuses, but we have to have a public debate and make decisions about the best way forward. The final point is, is just straight-up leadership. And everybody I talked to said you yeah. need clear, definitive leadership with confidence, right, but also with with a recognition of the threat and who are the dangerous actors. And we don't have that today. And, and I, you know, don't take my word for it. I I speak to the submarine commanders. I speak to the folks in the NSA ops center. I speak to the guys, men and women flying, by the way, it was a woman who was flying the spy plane when we flew over China, uh, men and women who are flying the spy planes and they, they see the threat and they want that leadership from the top and they don't have it from this commander in chief. Okay, really quickly, I want to get two last questions in. Um, by the way, thank you very much for all your questions. I try to integrate all of them in. And so one is really relying on your expertise related to China. Um, and it may be related to this or not, but I thought people would be interested because it's relevant. Can you discuss the relevance and impact of the Hong Kong demonstrations mm. in relation to threatening China's security? And then we have one more question. So. It's a big, I'll tell you, the, the fact that that's happening on uh, around the 30th anniversary yeah. of Tiananmen is just, is just remarkable. I'm surprised China didn't crack down harder uh, because they feel genuinely threatened by that, yep. not just in Hong Kong, <clears throat> but about the possibility that someone in Nanjing or Wuhan or Shenzhen, you know, gets the same idea because they have similar gripes. And that keeps Chinese party leaders up at night. Now, I don't we haven't seen the end of it. 
Hong, China will not let Hong Kong go. It will not let it democratize. It's going gonna, it's gonna to force this bill through in some way. Um, when I ask folks about what could be the next front in the shadow war, folks often mention Taiwan. I mean, there, there's genuine concern in the Pentagon that China will calculate now is the time to go. Mm-hmm. And there's an open question as to how aggressively the U.S. responds. Does the U.S. go to war over that? Right. I think that's an open question. Yeah. On the Russian side, Estonia, that possibility. Okay. Okay. So final question. Um, this is what I asked everyone who comes here, because I think it's very important. All these people have come here to hear you speak. They're going to hear a lot. They're going to filter through a lot. They will read the book. Mm-hmm. What are the two points or three points you want them to take out of this conversation that you and I have had? We're at war, a different kind of war, but we're at war, or war is being waged on us today. It's happening today with great success, and today we're losing that. We're losing that war. Uh, we continue to fight the last war, both in the kinds of weapons uh, that, that we focus our money and attention on um, and, and the strategic responses that, that we give and the way we view the adversary. Uh, and three, that it's, it's a defining conflict, I think, for, for, for our generation and our time, because we're talking about we're talking about a clash of systems here, right? And, and it has effects at home, it has effects abroad. Uh, and it's going to require our involvement uh, if we want to turn that around. Let's give a huge thank you to Jim Shudo, CNN Chief National Security Correspondent. Thanks very much. And author of The Shadow War for joining us this evening. Uh, we want to remind the audience that uh, copies of Shadow War Uh, Against America are available for purchase. And Jim is going to be more than happy to stay and sign these books for you. I'm Philip Yun. Now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club, the place where you're in the know, is adjourned.